Welcome to the element of surprise. My name is Chadwick J. Suet, your host 
on this little shindig we like to take together every once in a while. Uh, you can find us at www.podbean.com, more specifically eosmentallyirregular.podbean.com. That's the hosting site. All the episodes are up there. Check out the Facebook page, www.facebook.com backslash eosmentallyirregular. Um, okay, without any further ado, it has been a while. It's been a while since I've done this. It's been a while since you guys have heard the the velvety tones of my uh, the velvety dulcet tones of my of my 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 um, celestial and erotic voice. So I don't want to just jump back in with nothing. So I've pre-planned a lot, a lot of stuff for you. And uh, how, how can I say we're gonna we're gonna take an adventure. We're gonna go on an adventure tonight. We're gonna talk wrestling gimmicks. We're gonna talk. Uh, t- TV mascots. We're gonna talk sex toys. We're gonna talk a lot of lot of stuff, lot of stuff. So without further ado, let's begin. Let's start right off the bat with some TV mascots, um, because uh, I I'm nothing if not the type of guy that can, you know, see something, and instead of t- just taking it at face value. I have to dissect it. I've, I've got to dissect it. I've got to tear it apart and expose its little hidden insanities. And, um, you know, I mean, that's kind of the whole point of this podcast. The element of surprise. Take something that's every day that people consider normal or you don't even think about and just kind of spin it at you in a new light to the point where you have to look at it and you're never going to look at it the same way. And advertising mascots are really no exception. And I make it no secret to anybody... Um, of how completely off the goddamn rails I find advertising mascots to be when you really just analyze them a little bit more than you should. Uh, For example, let's take Quaker Oats. Let's look at Quaker Oats. Um, So after what I'm assuming was a casting error on the uh, behalf of Quaker Oats, they did a long-running series of commercials in the 1980s hosted by none other than Wilford Brimley. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Wilford Brimley is, you can find all of these commercials on YouTube. Just type in Wilford Brimley Quaker Oats commercials or watch virtually any movie with the curmudgeon old man that looks like a walrus with a mustache in the 80s. Uh, that's Wilford Brimley. But if you have seen the commercials or anything starring Wilford Brimley, you're going to immediately understand that this was an ad campaign based, I- I'm assuming 100% around intimidation, because these commercials had virtually no sales pitch at all in them to be found. It was more like Wilford Brimley was just giving you the news that oatmeal is what he had for you, and if you were smart, you were going to fucking eat it. That, that, that's how the commercials played out. Listen, Wilford Brimley was way too tough of a guy to be doing breakfast commercials. Diabetes? Sure. That makes sense. A debilitating disease? You want a tough old man to be like, listen, this sucks. Go get yourself some medication. Go get tested. But when you wake up in the morning and you're supposed to be like, you know, you're, you're a little groggy and you, you want to start your day br- uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, you don't go, hmm, who can I rely on to tell me what is the best breakfast for me? Should it be the animated tiger? Maybe the leprechaun? I got it. How about fucking Wilford Brimley? Because he's... he's not a person who's filled you with a lot of excitement at the prospect of a good breakfast, is what I'm saying. He looks like somebody went out of their way to teach a walrus how to fight, and then he speaks to you like a grandfather who found out that you just came out of the closet, and he wants you to know he's disappointed in you in 1977. Um, this is the same Wolfer Brimley that axe-murdered a bunch of sled dogs in John Carpenter's The Thing and exploded a team of human hunters while on horseback in the movie Hard Target, I'd like to point out. Um, He did spend the rest of his life threatening to punch a hole through your chest if you should even get diagnosed with type 2 adult-onset diabetes. So why in the name of God was he selling strawberry and cream instant oatmeal? I'm I'm guessing Clint Eastwood was busy and Jack Palance couldn't come come across uh, as anything more than too timid? Because there was absolutely no reason for the guy from Cocoon to be pushing Quaker Oats at you. And I've watched, a, I've gone down the rabbit hole, I've watched a lot of these commercials, and I'm not, 
I'm not at all exaggerating when I say this is a Wilford Brimley Quaker Oats commercial. Yeah, it's morning. I woke up again. Heart's still beating in my chest. I'm getting older every second. Well, if I'm going to get older, I might as well do it the good way with a bowl of Quaker oatmeal. You open up a box of cereal inside for your kitties as a little trinket or whatnot. Not in Quaker Oats. We just have 100% oats. The Quaker kind. Does that sound like a good idea to you? It's the right thing to do. It's, that's another thing. He always finished the commercials with, it's the right thing to do. Like, as if doing anything else was wrong. As if he was not only, not only telling you what you were going to fucking eat, but he was judging you on your moral compass for not eating Quaker Oats. Eat your Quaker Oats. It's the right thing to do. If you don't, I am going to let you know that I'm an experienced hunter. I've got a long rifle in the back of my truck. And I also happen to have your address, and your schedule, and the schedule of your wife and your school, and the school schedule of your children. I'm going to hunt them. You're going to come home from work one night, and your beloved, your beloved ones are going to be stacked in a pile on your living room, with a box of Quaker Oats, 100% pure Quaker Oats, placed up on, on top of the pile, just to remind you of what how you could have avoided this situation. I'm Wilford Brimley. It's the right thing to do. That was literally any of his fucking Quaker oatmeal commercials. And you can If you think that I'm exaggerating this, YouTube the motherfuckers. Go down that rabbit hole yourself. Moving along. <clears throat> Let's take a look at uh, Mrs. Butterworth. You know, the, the syrup woman. The one, the, the, Mrs. Butterworth is the one where syrup comes in a bottle that's shaped like the actual woman. Not Aunt Jemima, where it's got the, uh, 1920s blatantly racist photo of a, of a woman on there. The one, Mrs. Butterworth is the one where the bottle is actually a woman. And, sure, at first glance, I'm sure she comes across as a pleasant-looking woman of syrup. She could be your grandmother if your grandmother was filled to the brains with maple syrup. And I'm not saying that she isn't. I'm talking about Mrs. Butterworth now. Now, where it gets interesting is that when you really think about it, Mrs. Buttersworth is a tiny woman who shows up in your kitchen at breakfast and begs you to drink her blood because, like it or not, syrup is her blood. She just rolls in there all like, My blood is the yummiest! Just try it! And all you're trying to do is rationalize why your syrup is talking to you. Are you having a psychotic break? Are you, uh... All you, all you wanted to, to... Was some fucking pancakes. And to get through work without Gerald saying, Thank God it's Friday. But now you've got a little talking syrup woman at you who wants you to drink what's inside her. I mean, I get that the company wanted to make their bottle look like a tiny grandma. It's kind of cool. I get it. But I 100% do not at all, ever want to come alive and speak to me and if you go to your YouTube and binge watch the Mrs. Butterworth commercials like I did because I'm me and clinically insane you'll start to feel like Mrs. Buttersworth is a little full of herself because she will not shut the fuck up about how rich and thick she is she just continues to go on to it um, I personally don't care how thick she thinks she is she wants me to drink her blood, and I'm completely not interested. How about that Pillsbury Doughboy? How about him? He's another fucking weirdo. I mean, let's look at him for what he is. He is a tiny baker, made entirely from dough. But he also wants you to eat things that are made entirely from dough. He's basically the weird Sweeney Todd of his own universe who wants us to eat his race of dough people. The commercials back this up 100%, by the way, as he wears a tiny chef hat and is occasionally seen assisting you in the baking process, all the while just filled to the brim with complete glee. <laughs> Remember you poke him in the tummy and he's... <laughs> yeah, he's just psychotic with glee. 
he also makes sure that you enjoy the baked remains of his brethren and then graciously allows you to poke on his oh-so-very-ticklish tummy, which is, in my mind, the, sign, the signs of a true psychopath. Um, I want to know if he'd put up a struggle if you tried to bake him, though. Like, he's completely on board when you want to make cinnamon buns out of, you know, somebody he used to live next to. But I promise he'd make a panic-stricken beeline for the exit if he ever decided to give him a taste test of his own and uh, just kind of put him in the oven. Um, <clears throat> Alright, so the last mascot that I want to discuss for now is that goddamn monster they call Snuggle, Snuggle Bear. The, number one, Snuggle Bear is a furry little pervert. I want to be clear on that. Snuggle Bear is a furry little pervert. He clearly and obviously sneaks into your home and sniffs your laundry while happily rolling around in it. If he were an adult human, he'd be on a list of sex offenders and forced by law to tell you when he moves into your neighborhood. But for Snuggle, it's okay because he's a tiny cute bear. I mean, is this something, I want to know, secondly, is this something that just bears do? I don't watch a lot of nature documentaries, but... Like, are bears known for sniffing panties and rolling around in your, in your old denim jackets? Do they also give you hugs that last way too long? I'm trying to find the line but, but when, it, when it comes to bear perversions. Or is, is, is it that Snuggle is just making the point that bears are okay, but only if they're perverts? I feel like you shouldn't be trying to guess at a bear's moral code. Um, there isn't a good and bad for bears, there are just bears, and you shouldn't let them into your house. I don't care how fresh your laundry is, and I'm truly skeptical about how much it really wants to smell your clothes. It's way more likely to trash the place and eat your family. So, yeah, there's that. Okay, um, moving on, let's get to some pro wrestling gimmicks. Um, this, this topic came about because... I was listening to a fireside chat, and uh, Grimace uh, Ryan w was talking about something, he, and he off like just off the cuff, offhanded, like to the side, referenced Mantar. Like he meant to say Minotaur, but he referenced Mantar, who was a WWF wrestler back in the day, and um, you know he knows that, but only the true lifelong wrestling fans like can like just hear the name Mantar and just be like, oh fuck, Mantar! I know exactly who that is. And it got me thinking, I'm like, why, that, that really isn't that, it's not a good thing. It's not that, it's not a good thing to just know who Mantar is. So I started thinking about that, and then I started going down the rabbit hole of where, you know, what, what is it to create a, a gimmick, basically. So, you know, I, I, I thought about it, and I, I, I made some notes. And as a lifelong fan of pro wrestling, and knowing all of the subsequent characters that come along with pro wrestling and pro wrestling gimmicks, I can personally attest that there have been some true greats over the decades. Ric Flair, Bret the Hitman Hart, the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, the Black Hart, Owen Hart, the Rock, the Dudley Boys, Sabu, the Undertaker, and so on. That said, that said, for every successful and potentially, potentially legendary character, there are dozens of gimmicks that make even the most seasoned wrestling fan like myself say, what the fuck am I seeing? It's a sport where suspending your belief in reality is par for the course. I think any wrestling fan can agree with that. And even I had a few moments, and all of you listening to this who know me know how fucking nuts I am. Even I've had a few moments where I've had to question the mental health of those who thought that certain gimmicks were not only a good idea, but told the wrestler that was portraying said character to take that ball and run with it because they were 100% dead certain that this character was going to succeed. Now, like a lot of people my age, backyard wrestling with my friends was almost a daily part of my life for a while. And the creation of our own wrestling characters was a lot like what happens nowadays when you sit down to create a character in a video game. You, you think of your style, your look, your character's behavior, strengths, weaknesses, so on and so forth. 
all of those traits that you believe will make your gimmick stand out from the crowd. On the flip side of that same coin, creating a wrestling gimmick can also be like sitting down blackout drunk and then just spewing out all of, all the nonsense in your head, all of which you're convinced is a great idea can, at the time because you're blackout drunk. Like, oh yeah, I don't know, come down to the ring and he'll be eating a foot-long Italian hoagie on the way to the ring because he's going to need the carbs. Or, you know, he'll wear a coat, his pants, and a pair of shorts as his shirt because he's backwards and on the fringes of society. These are things that I can completely hear, like Jim Ross or Michael Cole saying, <coughs> excuse me, on a live broadcast about a certain character. You see what I mean? Um, that's to say that I know that coming up with wrestling gimmicks is as hard as it is easy. Does that make sense? I think that makes sense. It's as hard as it is easy. There are only so many variables that you have to address and consider, and it's really only inevitable that they're going to sometimes go a little sideways. Um, you know, with such a rich history of amazing characters and outlandish gimmicks, I think it was only fair that there have been, um, you know, swings and misses here and there, of course, but uh, there have been ones where the batter steps up into the box to, to get ready to go to bat, and rather than swing at all, he just kind of shits his pants and uh, has an epileptic seizure. Um, so I've compiled a list of some of these, and I'm going to tell you about them now. Let's begin. We're going to start with the Repo Man. Now, there are some eras in wrestling where the characters' gimmicks, they, they were just jobs. Like, you know, some were more fantastical than others, but they're just, they're just regular jobs. Basically, someone in the creative department uh, at the time would go to, like, a career fair and envision what the accountant handing out pamphlets would look like uh, on steroids and covered in baby oil. Or what the guy uh, who says that you might have a real future in construction and manual labor would look like with, uh, you know, his sleeveless flannel shirt tucked into not a pair of denim jeans, but a pair of, you know, uh, like denim skin-tight shorts. Um, and that's kind of the creative thinking, I believe, that went into the Repo Man. Um, Repo Man was a... Sneaky, he was a bad guy, he was a heel character. He was a sneaky character who uh, delighted in repossessing the items of his, uh, of his um, opponents. You know, like their cars, uh, he wore a black domino mask like the Lone Ranger or Zorro did, and an outfit that was decorated with tire tracks, um, which I, I guess means that he's been run over a time or two by people he's been trying to repossess vehicles from, which seems kind of weird to me, that he would be so fucking, you know, this is the Repo Man, but he's clearly a guy that's been hit by a car. Um, and the best way I could describe his personality was if you took the 1960s version of Frank Gorshin's The Riddler and just put him in a junkyard where he spent his days just repossessing things. And he always carried a large tow rope with him, which he would tie his opponents up with after defeating them. Um... You know, more on that rope, uh, we were always told that the rope was the same rope that he used to tow cars. Because I'm guessing, apparently, the Repo Man just went about, that's how he just went about his job. He just took the rope and he would just tie it around your bumper and just start dragging your car away barehanded. Uh, which I'm assuming he did in full costume, complete with his, uh, his domino mask. Uh, like some sort of, uh, car-thieving hamburglar. Um... He does hold the distinction of holding a Royal Rumble record. Um, he has the all-time elimination record for repossession agents, which is two. For the So there is that. Now, uh, Mantar. Moving on to Mantar. Wrestling promotions used to really treat the viewer like idiots. I'm not saying they don't now, because they do. But there, used, there was a time where no gimmick was too far overboard no matter how fucking absurd or supernatural they made it out to be. Um, they always sold it like it was real. And there was no better example in my mind of this than Mantar, who was pitched as a half-man, 
half buffalo, and I'm assuming they discovered him uh, fresh from a divorce, passed out in a urinal at Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, the Mantar character was basically that of a minotaur who charged at, trampled, and then mooed at his opponents. And they were just like, let's roll with it. Let's just assume that Mantar is real. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to assume, let's say Mantar. Let's say exactly that. Mantar, a half-man, half-buffalo pro wrestler, was real. That was the real story behind him in real life. How is his best use in life pro wrestling? Here we have this hulking man-beast that they could send off to wars or work as a bouncer somewhere. Um, he's supposed to be an actual fucking minotaur, so literally anything but getting kicked in the nuts a few times by Randy Savage would be a better use of his supernatural skills. He's a fucking minotaur. It's like if The Undertaker is really out there with powers of coming back from the dead and turning lights out with his mind. You know, you'd imagine he'd have a lot more career choices than professional wrestler. Most likely, he and Mantar would be on, studied by some government agency before being put to work for national security tasks. What I'm saying here is that, you know, Mantar, while a bad wrestling gimmick, is something that, in the world, we absolutely need roaming around every, every single national treasure just waiting for someone to slip up and try to take it. Battle Cat. Battle Cat. Listen. Listen to me. I do not care how big the dude in the wrestling ring is. If he's pretending to be a little kitty cat before he steps up to fight me, I know I'm going to either knock him out or engage in crazy cat dances with him. I don't care how impressive it is that you're able to get down in the center of the ring and put your leg over the back of your head and lick your own asshole for the perfect cat-like grooming taunt. You're still in the center of the ring licking your own asshole and purring. You're absolutely never going to be destined to be world champion in any federation. That alone sums up Battle Cat. That, that handles him nicely moving on. Last wrestling gimmick I have for the night, the Yeti. So, you just heard what I said about Mantar, right? The Yeti. If you've ever seen a pro wrestler known as the Yeti, before knowing anything about him at all, you should have immediately thought to yourself, yeah, this, I see that they've reached the burn victim stage of pro wrestling character development. And I wouldn't blame you for that at all, because the Yeti was a seven-foot-tall man wrapped in toilet paper that looked like he had just left the hospital following some horrible tragedy. But it wasn't a man who left the hospital after some horrible, like, tragedy in which he survived a fire. It was just the Yeti. Who also made his entrance after busting through a block of ice. I'm assuming that they confused, the people creating this gimmick create, confused Yetis with mummies. And, like, once they got past that, somebody caught them and like, Hey, wait, that's a mummy, not a Yeti. They're like, fuck it, too late, just run with it. Because the Yeti was just this tall, lumbering dude wrapped from head to toe in toilet paper. And he spent the bulk of his time in the ring basically trying not to unravel that outfit of his. And probably wondering if he was the one who mixed up these two wildly different mythological monsters for his entire life. Um, you know, I, I assume that being the Yeti was more of a challenge because you might be trying to land a powerbomb on your opponent, but you can't help but think to yourself that you spent the first 30 years of life walking around not knowing the difference between a mummy and a Yeti and wondering what else you've completely missed fucked up. Because the only thing harder than looking at some of these gimmicks as a fan must have been trying to make sense of them as the performer. Uh, lucky for the Yeti, his career was, quote, saved by joining Raven's Flock as Reese in which he portrayed that guy who used to be the Yeti. Much like he does for real, every day, and will continue to do for the rest of his natural life. Alright, that's my wrestling gimmicks. Hope you enjoyed it. Moving right along, moving right along. So, you know sometimes you have a conversation about something minor, 
But for whatever reason, it just opens a door in your head of questions. I recently had that conversation when I noticed that they're making a fourth Hotel Transylvania movie. And I got on to the topic of Dracula's daughter. Uh, the question that was left burning in my mind is, movies aside, does Dracula actually have a f functional uh, reproductive system? So just hear me out on this. According to basically all vampire lore that I could come across, when you become a vampire, you become living undead. As in, you're no longer alive, but you are living. Basic medicine states that sperm can only live inside the human body for up to 36 hours after the point of death, unless that body or the sperm is frozen. Now, Dracula is distinctly not frozen and is absolutely dead or undead, and as a vampire, his sperm are dead too. He can only create new vampires, but they're not his children, they're just other vampires. So, basically, Dracula likely can't even get an erection due to the natural lack of blood flow that would be necessary to maintain an erection. And that leads me to the next question, could he even ejaculate? I don't know, would he just ejaculate blood? Personally, I don't believe that Dracula could impregnate anybody on account of his being an undead vampire with dead shriveled balls like Lou Ferrigno. Um, but who am I to make that decision? Maybe I'm wrong and Dracula is just a regular Joe with a blood disorder and an allergy to direct sunlight. Not for me to say, but I do know that I'm going to keep pursuing answers until I'm satisfied that the answer to this vampire cum conundrum is solved. Moving right on. Moving right on. Um, so it's been a while since I did this. But uh, I went down another rabbit hole. And I'm now of the personal belief that sex toys are not being designed by people for people. I'm more of the belief that they are being designed by aliens who have no fucking idea what human intercourse is like whatsoever. Um, some of the sex toys that I've stumbled upon have so little understanding of basic human anatomy that secret alien invasion is somehow the most rational explanation for their existence. Uh, my first example comes from the realm of male masturbation aids. Now, you may think that the limits to what men can safely put their dicks inside were discovered long ago. And, thankfully, I can assure you that those limits are flagrantly ignored here. If they were understood at all by an item called the Noodle King. If you look at the Noodle King on the outside, it looks basically like the right size and color. It's... It kind of looks like a second, larger penis. So, that asks the question, what kind of guy wouldn't want to stick their dick inside of something that looked like a large, a second, larger dick? Oh, that's right, all of them. But, let's get back to the mind-bending horror. Notably, the nightmare world of tiny little penises strangling tentacle things hiding inside the King of the Longfellows like the garden of poor unfortunate souls at Ursula's undersea lair. There's no earthly explanation why anyone would make this thing. This is clearly the work of extraterrestrials with some pretty brazen assumptions about human anatomy. So, that said, it's not unusual to assume that, you know, generally sex toys are intended to replicate very particular bits of human anatomy. You know the ones, I'm not going to say them, you know what they are. But what if you wanted a toy which replicated a bit more? Not too much more, mind you, but something that you could still fit into a suitcase. Something more like a bizarre half-person made entirely out of rubber that you can both uh, mate with and also fit into a carry-on. Well, you're in luck, because there is one. It's called the Master Series Knees Up Nikki. Now, if you're the choosier sort of maniac that I fear you are, have no fear. 
because they absolutely offer a version where Nikki's knees are bent into a position that is physically impossible for any real human being unless you've just dislocated every joint in your body and can just rearrange your muscles and internal organs at will. If knee, if this thing, if this knees up Nikki was the only one out there, I, 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 I'd, I'd consider it a one-off. But there are, are more. There are more of these. She, Nikki isn't alone. There's also Sex Flesh Kyle, and it seems that whoever is creating these things isn't totally familiar with human anatomy uh, at all, but is bone-chillingly acquainted with the depths of insanity and what it must have been like to imagine being Jeffrey Dahmer. Because there, Kyle and Jump Me Jerry, which is basically a mangled... Jump Me Jerry is basically just a mangled body with no limbs... She's all splayed out, boobs on the side, a lopsided fucking half-ass, a full-on exorcist backwards head twist with her face frozen in a look of terror. Um, that's a stupid thing that you can buy and put on the floor and go to town on, which leads me back to a my alien's point, because this doesn't seem like the work of anybody who has ever seen another living person at all. Much more, it seems like the work of a serial killer who just loves to harm people in the most obscene ways. But if you're still not on board with this, I, I've got more. That's okay, I've got more. For example, how many times have you just been going about your day and asked yourself, huh, you ever wanted to just fuck a formless pile of body parts? Well, I promise you that some space monster was clearly studying and mistranslated every thought in your head, as well as an anatomy textbook, when they created this goddamn homunculus, because it is a Swiss army knife of human body parts put together without any goddamn rhyme or reason. At all. And it's called the concubine. The best way I can guess is that it's attempting to combine breasts, a vagina, a penis, an ass, and a remote control into a compact lump the size of a couch pillow. Um, if nothing else, it serves as a stark visual reminder that a jack-of-all-trades is, in fact, a master of none, because it is the platypus of sex toys. But if you've still got some reservations, good listener, good friend, if you have reservations and are still thinking to yourself, yeah, but Chad, people are just fucked up, and I'd have to say you've got a point, but I have more examples. Like, The Real Touch. Uh, the Real Touch is a virtual reality sex toy that creates sensations that correlate to whatever the user is watching on screen. Basically, uh, it's a sleeve, you put your dick inside of it, you plug it into uh, your DVD device or your phone, and uh, you just jam your dick in there, and it tricks... It's basically a, a device that tricks you into jamming your dick inside of machinery gears. That sounds like your kind of jam. No, it's not my kind of jam. Uh, it's something that was either con constructed by an intergalactic zoologist who had a con who's catastrophically confused earth words for sex and violent castration, or someone who could not stop masturbating to Stephen King's fucking movie The Mangler. Because there's no other reason to create a portable fanged laundry press for your wiener. It does. It does. There's no reason for that. And lastly, if by this point you're still not convinced that the sex toy industry is being run by reptile creatures from the planet Zang and Jeff Bezos, our future alien overlords, constructed a masturbation aid that lays translucent eggs inside of your body when you use it. It's called an ovipositor because the aliens just clearly don't give a fuck anymore. They're not trying to hide it. There's no getting around it. This is a tube that shoots slimy, cosmic eggs into your butt or into your vagina, and then your job is to birth them back out. It's designed to simulate one very, very specific nightmare, the end of which is aliens populating the world with their hideous fucking brood and wiping out all of humanity. That's the only possible reason anyone would ever want to simulate this. That's it. There's no other way around it. There's no other reason for it. It should not fucking exist. That. God. Yeah. Fucking. Oh, you know what I haven't done lately, hon? Hey, what's that, babe? I have not had uh, gelatinous alien eggs 
fucking milked out of my butt. Oh, well, we could take care of that. Okay, by the way, instead of saying we could take care of that, you should have immediately had me reprimanded to a goddamn psych ward because I'm out of my fucking mind. So, moving right along here, what do you imagine, good listener, would be a uh, day in the life of Goro from Mortal Kombat? Let me, let, me, let me say this. You know Goro. Everybody, everybody in the world knows what Mortal Kombat is. It's a video game series that spawned everything imaginable marketing-wise. Two fucking movies. Well, two sets of movies. One that was just decent, followed by awful, followed by what the fuck, followed by kind of decent, but where, how is it Mortal Kombat aside from the characters? But um, they do specifically state in all the games and in all the movies that the Mortal Kombat tournament takes place once a generation, or every 50 years. And that Goro, the 8-foot-tall, four-armed, half-dragon man from Outworld, was the grand champion of the Mortal Kombat tournament for 500 years. 500 years. That means every 50 years he has to fight in the tournament and defend his crown. But what does he do for those 50 years? So, I'm going to get to that, but you need to know that in the Mortal Kombat universe, the main martial arts tournament that they're fighting around, it, again, I said it takes place every 50 years. Gore is the champion for 500 years, so he has 50-year spans between defending his title. What the hell does he do? What does a four-armed, half-dragon person do for 50 years before he goes out and does the one fucking thing he's known for? Well, I've done my research, and the games gave me little to no info on Goro's day-to-day between tournaments. And I did reach out to the creators, who I'm guessing didn't think my question was important, so they didn't get back to me. Um, now, I will say this. Prince Goro, he's, he's Prince of the Shokan in the series. They are, again, a race of four-armed, half-man, half-dragon people. You've got four arms... Half-man, half-dragon, they're all eight feet tall. Goro became grand champion of Mortal Kombat after beating the great Kung Lao, and he remained champion again for 500 years until he was defeated by Liu Kang, and the very first, then the storyline of the first game goes, and there you go. Um, so, I had, to, I had to dig on my own, and only through contacting Goro himself was I able to determine what he did during those time frames. Um... He had a lot of downtime, so he owned a small ranch-style home in Outworld where he lived with his on-again and off-again uh, wife, Aubrey Goro, and their sons, Edwin and Bentley Goro. Uh, most also don't know that Goro's first name is Tim, and he owned Tim Goro's fish market and pub, where between bloody martial arts battles to the death, he earned a meager living for himself and his family. Um, his stubborn refusal to give up on the dying business often caused strain in his marriage, and he and his wife would get into arguments in front of their kids, with uh, Tim, Tim Goro, uh, usually storming off to get drunk and tear the spines out of people that he would encounter. Um, once, when he was completely shit-faced at some local dive, he was confronted by a group of bar patrons who were angry that he kept playing Cheeseburger in Paradise on the jukebox, and... Uh, you know, they, 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 they wanted him to change the song. So Goro did what any large half-man, half-dragon with four arms would do, which is, you know, he just crushed their heads between his arms and then ripped their spines out, took a dollar out of each of their wallets, and went back to the jukebox and played Cheeseburger in Paradise again. Because that's what you do when you're Goro. Um, eventually, this caused Aubrey to leave him and take the kids. Um, and then his fish market burnt down. Um... He basically shit himself and threw up, throws up a lot where Shang Tsung has to come pick him up in his 1990 Hyundai Excel, and then he took Goro to rehab. So Goro spent a decent amount, of, a decent chunk of time between tournaments and rehab. Um, you know, he starts dating his AA sponsor, Rhonda, for a while, and then they were together for seven months, but he accidentally killed her during sex. Uh, he tore all of her limbs off during his climax and incinerated her by ejaculating fire. Uh, which, 
is something that you should uh, you should know if in case you ever look at Goro and are like, hey, I bet he'd be good in bed. No, he absolutely won't. He's going to tear your limbs off and ejaculate fire. Um, now, there's also many of you, many, many people out there don't know that Tim Goro loves animals and he collected rare birds. He also started every single day of his life by doing squats and push-ups. And his favorite breakfast is one of the rare birds that he collected, roasted with his fire breath. Um, he also had trouble in math, but he did get straight A's in science. And he once built a hot air balloon from the skin of many of his Mortal Kombat victims and fashioned their bones into the basket. And he powered it with his own dragon fire breath because he loved to watch sunsets. But he loathed sunrises because it was the opposite of a sunset, as uh, he once explained to Shang Tsung. Now, also, Goro was not overtly fond of fruit, but he did enjoy most vegetables. He could also ride a unicycle and spent some of his free time volunteering at homeless shelters. Uh, he did not like when people called him Timothy which is why he preferred just to be go called Goro overall. He's just like, just Goro. I am Goro. Uh, because people would be like, okay, Timothy. He's like, just Goro. Just call me Goro. Um, now, he was also terrified of people with dwarfism. And he would use all four of his arms to pick them up and mash them into balls. And then hurl them into mountainsides. Uh, he carried an expired ID with him for 23 years. And he was once mistaken for Willem Dafoe on a flight from South Carolina to Washington. Despite having four arms and being a half-dragon, they thought he was Willem Dafoe. Um, which is also why he's currently on the no-fly list. And he has trouble pronouncing the word osteoporosis. So that's a little bit on the day-to-day -day of Goro for you. And as far as the osteoporosis thing comes, Goro, just, just lean into those vowels, buddy. You'll get it. Um, okay. So that was fun. I gotta do this more often than once every, like, eight weeks. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, great. If not, that's fine. I'm gonna keep doing it anyway. Um, and there's, those are, there are those of you out there who will keep listening. But if you're gonna listen to anything besides this, check out a fireside chat on Libsyn.com, hosted by Ryan McCormick. Check out the McSauce comic book podcast hosted by Ian, Paul, and Matt on Podomatic. Check out Case in Point hosted by Justin Case on Audioboom. Check out We Hope This Finds You Well. Check out Lunch After Dark. And check out of the hotel early before the cleaning lady gets there. That said, thank you guys. I am going to try to make this a weekly thing from now on. Uh, hang in there. Thank you for sticking with me. As always, I love you all. Keep listening. Keep supporting uh, local podcasters. Keep listening to the Element of Surprise. Leave us a review. Tell your friends about it. And as always, cue the fucking bear music. Oh,